Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here uh, once again with my integral brother, Keith Witt. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. How you doing? I'm doing always great when I get to talk with you. <laughs> and we get to do the Shrink and the Pundit. Yes, we do. Oh boy. <laughs> How are you, so Jeff? We've talked, I'm doing great and equally just lit up to be able to talk to you about these really interesting topics that we have, you know, one after the other. We just explore different aspects of, you know, living integrally. And so one of the things, we're going to do a little bit, uh, something a little bit retro today mm. and talk about actually what, for me, was a huge funnel into integral. And I'm talking about the work of Joseph Campbell and how important that was to me before I ran into Ken's work and you know, moved more into an integral view. But Campbell was important because he too was doing the project of creating these big sort of meta-narratives and finding these large patterns in culture that had really never been seen before. And that's just, you know, that just turns me on as an integralist. I think it turns a lot of integralists on. And I know you've been thinking a lot about Campbell, and you know one of the things we do and get to do, uh, having you know a reasonably good integral download, is you know just see how integral view or an evolutionary view really helps to illuminate and re-enliven uh, Campbell's work. So that's a good project for the morning, don't you think? I think so. <laughs> I think it's a fun topic. Yeah, and I know really it's one you've been thinking about and working on. And so what are you thinking about it, Keith? Well, I came to mythology uh, as a child. I was fascinated by the myths, read all of them. Um, yeah. When I was in the, the fourth grade, we had a project. We were supposed to write a myth. And I went, okay. And I wrote this myth that I gave it to my teacher, and she was so blown away that she sent me to every room in the school and had me read it to all the other students because I had an opportunity to channel archetypes, and boy, I went for it. It was uh, wow. Really... That has to be a high point for a kid to get oh, that kind of recognition. Point. Yeah. Yeah, and and also to be able to teach. Really, I mean, I didn't realize yeah. it at the time, but but that was. I felt kind of the joy of channeling something else in, into the world. And, uh, and science fiction always fascinated me, which is the modern, uh, modern myth-making of the 20th century. Uh, science fiction was how Orange uh, surrendered to the mythological impulse and created endless, endless archetypal forms um, in every direction. And, you yeah. know, Orange, Orange needs to have a right-hand validation to be able to be creative. And so all these great scientists in the 20th century really wanted to release their intuition. And so using a little bit of science from the right hand, they engaged in myth-making in these incredible science fiction wonderlands that, that pulled from relativity and no, pulled from quantum physics. Yeah, it's really helpful to hear that because I often think of orange or modernity as wringing the myth out and the, the myth and magic out of society, uh -huh. and which is, of course, their job in terms of uh, deconstructing and uh, the you know the magic and mythic uh, stages of consciousness, yeah, and purifying them in a way. But mm -hmm. I don't think as much about the actual mythology of orange of science. And oh, you're yeah. right. That is an avenue, and I also uh, went through a major science fiction phase, a lot of integralists have, and still love it. Yeah. yeah. So you've so been that, revisiting the, the work of Joseph Campbell. I and, read Hero of uh, a Thousand Faces when I was about 17 or 18, completely blew my mind, and then studied Jungian psychology with a Jungian therapist named um, Bob Blakemore in Santa Barbara before he died. Uh, yeah. And one of my colleagues, uh, well, I started some counseling centers um, with a guy named Steve Eisenstadt in the 70s, and, and then when I went into private practice, he went on and created Pacifica, which is a, a, a university postgraduate uh, school dedicated to depth psychology, and, and heavily, they're the, where the Campbell Library is. 
And so I have a huge amount of love and, and, and interest and have used it in my practice forever. And recently uh, uh, decided that I wanted to give, in my lectures, my School of Love lecture series, I wanted to give a lecture on the hero's journey and the mythological uh, arc from uh, the beginning of consciousness through the coming integral age. And that's where my interest has been the last couple of months, and that's what I wanted to talk with you about today. Well, cool. So why don't you lay out some of that territory? 200,000 years ago, there were two mutations on the human FOXP2 gene. It has 715 sites, which gave us, at that point, it shifted us into the capacity for grammar, I, you, me, us, in the past, present, and future, and for metaphor. As soon as the human brain had the capacity for metaphor, people began creating stories. Now, this happens developmentally around four or five a child develops a capacity for autobiographical narrative. And at two, when we develop language, immediately what brains do when you have that capacity for representational thinking is brains create stories in the present moment. In fact, at every given moment, our brains are scanning millions of inputs, picking seven plus or minus two, and creating a little story out of those with the past, present, and future, and with the emotion and with impulse. Human brains naturally do that. So that started 200,000 years ago. And so with self-aware consciousness and awareness of the past, present, and future, what happened is people started coming up with stories that explained their relationships, explained the natural world, explained time, explained space, and so on. And right about the axial period when um, uh, orange was, was blossoming, um, all across the world, um, there were seekers and teachers that opened themselves up and channeled enduring insights about consciousness and about the world that basically nailed our current understanding of the universe according to quantum physics and string theory. Um, You're and talking relativity. about scientists. Yeah. That, that if we look at the origin myth of all those traditions, the origin myths say out of nothingness, there came a form. They called it the cosmic egg in many of them. And then out of that form came life. Out of that life came man and woman, male and female. And then out of that came the world, which will last for a period of time and then go back into nothingness. Now, the, well, as you just stated it, Keith, that is the scientific story fits into every one of those points. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Campbell called it the cosmogenic uh, theory, and he came up with it before the Big Bang had been discovered. Hero with a Thousand Faces was per first published in 1949. And so these stories, based to a certain extent on our capacity for for understanding the world and also for everybody's capa dream capacity because almost all the, the myths have a dreamlike quality, are based in dreams, but they're larger than dreams in that they've caught the universal appeal. They've continued through every culture. And what Campbell did in Hero of Thousand Faces, which, and this is what turned all the integralists and the future integralists on, he took 240 myths and he put them all together and he said, not only are there archetypal forms, not only is there an understanding of the cosmogonic uh, cycle, um, but there, within the context of that, there are stories that define the arc of the human existence. And the arc of, of each person's life is defined to a certain extent by the hero's journey. And the hero's journey has predictable stages. And that people, every human being, to one extent or another, is on their hero's journey and is on many hero's journeys. And and on that hero journey, they rise and they fall. Uh, they meet fate in various forms. And they're guided. Uh, they're guided yeah. by the, the form of the journey itself. They're guided by the archetypes that uh, they're drawn to. And they're also guided by their mystical connection with the other world. Yeah. And well, when you, when you just meant, brought up the hero's journey, I, I literally felt myself relax because uh, I... It was so important to me at the time I heard that. And I was probably, I guess, in my mid-20s or late-20s or whatever, to realize that actually 
bad stuff is supposed to happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that we're actually supposed to have challenges. Things aren't yeah. really supposed to go well or according to plan. That we uh-huh. really do meet guides and everybody we meet has something to tell us and teach us. And mm-hmm. that there is a growth. Basically, you know, whether or not it's evolutionary in the sense that we typically think of it, it's a big trajectory of growth. And, and, I think, um, and it also re-enchants the world. I mean, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I feel like my life means something. Even though I still was an atheist, whatever, it, just, it was deeply fulfilling to, uh, to, to get that teaching from Campbell. Uh-huh. It, yes. And, it, you know, when you talk, it reminds me of a lecture Daniel P. Brown gave when he was talking about Mahamudra Buddhism. And he said that, that when you when you achieve the the later stages of uh, all at onceness, that the world becomes luminous and your body feels like a light body, and that yep. every single object in the world has mythological significance. And if you yep. do gross, subtle, causal, and non-dual meditation on the different chakras, that's exactly where you end up. I often think the world feels stage lit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Luminous. Luminous. And the the mistake that Campbell made is the same, and and also the mistake that Jung made is the mistake that everybody makes up to recently in whatever value meme they find themselves in. That when they predict the future, they just predict a further elaboration of their value meme. You know, Campbell Campbell and and Jung basically thought that modernity would just keep getting more modern. Right. We get more science, we get more understanding, and we get more depth and all that other stuff. Um, Campbell, um, even though he had a deep connection with, with spirit, always held mist um, to be as if, to be a metaphor. And was completely impatient with people who uh, held myth to be literal reality. Um, a, a wonderful point that he made in his book was, that there's only three traditions that he could find that insisted that the followers um, believe that the metaphor was actually physically real, um, that, the, that their image of God actually was God. And those three were Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. He said all the other religions he studied basically understood that the images were translucent, that they were basically forms that were designed to give us a metaphoric relationship with an ineffable quality of spirit. And ineffable so aspects that, of it. You're saying that for a Roman, um, Apollo would they would know that it was there wasn't really a god in some land that was pulling the strings. Yeah, orange orange Roman. Remember, there's there were red Romans, blue Romans, and orange Romans. The orange mm-hmm. Roman would have a sense that there was uh, like Plotinus. You yeah. would have a sense that, yeah, there's an ineffable quality, and that, and, that, and that Apollo is the form of a particular aspect of the, uh, wisdom, a particular yeah. aspect of, of, of filial love. Um, but it's a translucent image that reflects some ineffable quality on the other side. Yeah. Though a blue Roman would actually pray to Apollo, believe that Apollo, exi- Apollo existed, ask Apollo to give him a break, um, and be pissed off at Apollo if things went bad. I mean, so, and that's how it is always. You know, if you're, if you're blue, you think that there's a, uh, uh, someone like you, you know, right. that is... Well, see, that's, that's, that's why the, the, the argument about Christianity, Islam, and, and, and uh, Judaism, Judaism being the only ones, it's like, don't they all do that at blue? And don't they all do that at red? I mean, yeah, I think about the deities, the deities in, in Tibetan Buddhism. At one point, those were seen as real, you know, uh, and that's a good now point. We, yeah, you know, maybe if Campbell was here, we go. You know, maybe it wasn't just those three. You know, he had a yeah. certain amount of hostility to all the violence that had been done in history in the name of myth. Um, and, well, I'll and tell maybe you what, he was just, who could blame him at 1949? <laughs> Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, to it's a certain amazing extent, that anybody could write anything positive at all at that stage of the game, and that's yeah. And I know you've mentioned that both Jung and uh, uh, Campbell had sort of uh, sort of an existential neurosis brought on by the first half of the 20th century, which they lived through. 
Yes. Jung in Europe. Yes. And yes, both of them. And and both, neither one of them had seen had a sense of what the spiral was. And and also Jung himself was afraid of the collective. Uh, Carl Jung, when he wrote to Bill Wilson, um, saying that um, uh, recovery from addiction needed a spiritual orientation, told Bill Wilson explicitly, this is what I believe, but I couldn't tell my colleagues that they would rip me to pieces. You know, right. the, fact that the idea that Carl Jung was actually worried what his colleagues thought is kind of interesting. And later on, when he became too famous to be ripped up, he, he complained about Jungians you know, taking him uh, literally. Jung uh, did? Yeah. He didn't like Jungians <laughs> much. <laughs> And what was his what was his critique or his complaint about them? Well, they were too fundamentalist. It was, it was you know he was always and then though his orientation Jung's orientation was towards individual was towards individuation, and this is the difference between Jung and Campbell. Campbell was captured by his studies of the East. Uh, you can tell from his writing and his speaking that he had had seminal experiences with with unity, um, that he could feel. Um, the unqualifiable out of which everything arose. And he, in that sense, he was a master of two worlds, which is essentially what happens uh, after the apotheosis and the return in the hero's journey. And maybe what we could do is, is we could kind of do a little um, uh, go run-through of the hero's journey and, and talk about how it's, Ooh, different in, how it's different in red, blue, orange, green, and teal. Because it is different. Um, the hero's journey has the same um, arc of experience, but it's a different experience coming from those different value means. And I think that's what Integral brings to depth psychology. Yeah. Um, it brings that particular understanding. Uh, well, that sounds great, and I'm going to sit back and love this because this uh, really helps me light up all the points in my own strata. And so we, we start with the myth as a collective understanding of how everything works and how we should be together. And they, they arose and they, they form as, as cultures form. And ethnocentric, tribal cultures will have tribal myths, uh, ethnocentric and so on will have those kinds of myths. Within the context of that is the, the, always the question, how does the individual live their life? Well, there's a seminal understanding in the depths of, of the collective that we never, not, not one of us ever exists alone, independent from the collective. And yet all of us, to a certain extent, has the responsibility to direct our individual consciousness through the universe that came into being when we were born, and when we were conceived. Okay, that, that's a paradox. The paradox is I feel my essential uniqueness as a consciousness, and yet I'm aware of how I'm intimately interconnected with a wide variety of social networks and other human beings and, the, and life itself and the universe uh, itself. And so how do I make sense of that? Well, the hero's journey is a form that ar has arisen out of human consciousness. It's inevitable, really. Uh, to a certain extent, uh, the, all the cosmic uh, mythological forms uh, were in place at the Big Bang. They were there waiting to be discovered when there was life, and then when there was uh, sexual dimorphism, and then when there was kinship, and so on. Those evolutionary forces were moving towards the mythological forms that we've observed throughout human history and that we will observe as, as history progresses. One, thing that, one of the very few things that Ken says that I disagree with is he says there's not going to be new religions because we have video cameras, and we won't, you know, people will, 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 won't believe the miracles because the miracles only worked because somebody said there was a burning bush or somebody rose from the dead. Right. I personally think that's not accurate. I think that human beings experience miracles um, and observe miracles um, all the time. And I think new religions will continue to arise. Case in point, the evolutionary movement, which is creating a religion that's arising in the United States as we speak. Yeah, like E.O. Wilson said that, Evolution is the greatest myth of all. Yeah. In, in know, the best sense of the word. Because it's actually true scientifically. That's, you know, yeah. no other religion can say that. And, and it's just, in a way, also inevitable. I mean, our religions always incorporate our knowledge of the world as best we can. We have a creation story that is just amazing, marvelous. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I just, uh, I, I did a, uh, a little calculation about if all of evolution were a 24-hour day, uh -huh. um, 
midnight to midnight. The earth arose at 4 p.m. Okay. Uh, three, there was, in, in the last three hours, mammals, in okay. the last, and, and I have it all laid out, but the, the coup de grace is human beings the last 1.5 seconds before midnight. <laughs> The pyramids, 700 seconds of ago, 700 of a second ago, and Hey Jude was written 7,000th of a second ago. <laughs> you know, so something's going on here. And if you can't find yeah. a religion in that, or some sort of spiritual, aha, realization with a capital R, you know, I don't know what you need. Good example, Hey Jude, in that the Beatles, to this day, have a mythic luminance and will always have a mythic luminance and to, to this day you know Paul McCartney sings yesterday it's like somebody standing up in church and singing Amazing Grace yeah. and rock concerts are, the, are basically for the youth of the day for many of the youth of the day rock concerts are now the religious ceremonies they're the revivals yeah. Bruce yeah. Springsteen preaches and, and yeah. has unabashedly you know, you know, preached his message for decades yeah. And it's a heavily spiritual message. So it's interesting you mentioned E.O. Wilson. E.O. Wilson described himself in his book, Consilience. He said, I'm a, I'm a scientist. Scientism, yes, you can call me guilty of scientism. And so he didn't realize it, but he was, he was mapping out his particular blind spot. And so you read that book, which is a brilliant book, and then all of a sudden you hit the blind spots. You know, he comes to dreams and goes... Dreams are just the emanations from uh, the pulse yeah. from the thalamus. He, he goes to spirit. <laughs> he goes, no, there's just no, well, who, who, can, who can say? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, uh, you could see that, that he has these, these, these black and white distinctions that he experiences as scientific reality when, when actually there are areas where there hasn't been persuasive data. And, and he forgets the, the cardinal rule of all scientists, which is science never, ever proves anything. All science does is provide data to support hypotheses or dispute hypotheses. Mm -hmm. um, and see, that was, that's his blind spot from not having an understanding from four quadrants. Sure. Uh, no, I know, and, and it's rampant in the culture at large. Oh, God. <laughs> you know. Which brings us to the hero's journey. Which brings the us hero's to the hero's journey, because uh, we're the heroes here. We're the heroes, and so the hero is called... <laughs> And the hero is not called necessarily by God saying, hey, you know, Jeff, Jeff, come on, we have some stuff to do. The hero is called by their experience with not being fully in harmony with the world. Often the call is a big mistake, is, is a huge blunder. Sometimes the call, the call is an accident or a catastrophe. Sometimes the call is a feverish excitement about a particular area. Um, whatever the call is, um, it pulls us out of our ordinary um, existence, and our immediate reaction is to say no to it. No, no, it's too much trouble. It's too soon, it's too late, uh, I'm too busy, that kind of stuff. Right. And you see this in every myth. You know, the first time that Gandalf asked Fr Bilbo if he wanted to go to the Lonely Mountain, Bilbo said, you are fucking kidding me, Gandalf. There's no way that I am leaving my hobbit hole and going to the Lonely Mountain. Get out of here. And so he, <laughs> we have to be called again. And then when we're called again, some part of us, some chord in us, if, if we hear, rings, and we say yes. And as soon as we say yes, what happens is our companions and our aides start showing up. You know, the hero with a thousand faces is given to us when we're 17 or 18 years old, or the road less traveled. Um, we go to an Europa Institute and we take a class, um, uh, one, of, one of my uh, clients took a black studies class in uh, Berkeley, um, and the, uh, the cultural perspectives in that class blew this woman's mind, lit her up, yeah. and, and, and called her to a life of social service. And so we're called, we receive the call, and then guides show up. And as guys show up, we start moving towards our goal. And at that particular point, there's a threshold. And the threshold is stepping into an identity that we haven't had before, and there's always guardians of that threshold. And the guardians might be some boss who doesn't want us to do something creative, or it might be the mortgage, you know, I can't do this new thing because I might not be able to pay the mortgage. 
or it actually might be um, uh, some physical limitation. I'm afraid that if I went, if I learned how to scuba dive, that I would die. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And somehow we have to trick or defeat the guardians of the threshold and step through. And when we step through, we go into the area of enhanced power. Some part of us expands, and then we're on the road of adventures, the road of trials. And this is where the storytellers just go crazy and have a good time. Now, for me, this last time when I've read The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that part of it actually was quite boring to me. You know, I was skimming through all his narratives of his 240 myths because it was like being in a therapy session and having one of my clients recount one of their dreams to me. Um, <laughs> I don't mind doing that in a therapy session. If you pay me. Yeah, well, if you, if you pay me and also if I can make it relevant to your particular experience. Yeah. But, you know... As far as I'm concerned, all those all those stories were basically that. You know, they're they're yeah. a lot more elaborate and they're they're a lot more universal and so on. But the deeper truths below those stories were: you go on that road of adventures and trials, and sometimes you die. Sometimes you are you are caught in the grip of the teeth of the monster, and literally you die. Um, Jay Moriarty, famous surfer, just kept pushing the edge and free diving until finally he died. Um, you know, a lot of people will do that. Uh, they'll just keep pushing the edge until something happens. And, if, and often if they don't die, you know, if they have the, the accident and they survive it, then that becomes another call into another form of service. And that particularly, that area leads you, that accident, that, that disaster leads you to what Campbell called the belly of the whale. Or the hero goes into profound depression or into a darkness where they're feeling hopeless and they feel despair. And often in modern society, we'll experience that literally as depression or as anxiety or as a relationship that seems like it's going nowhere and there's nothing that we can do about it or as a job that seems like a dead job or a life that seems like a dead life. And as we collapse into that and open ourselves up to change, we need to have a, a reconciliation with the masculine and the feminine, what he called atonement or at one minute with the father, and somehow a meeting and a reconciliation with the beloved, uh, with the feminine. And that can happen in a million different ways, but it's a necessary thing for us to go to the next level of development. And, and Jung, uh, when he, in his system, he called uh, adult development um, individuation. And ultimately, he said, for someone to be an, indivi an individuated uh, human being, they needed to integrate the archetypal father, the archetypal mother, the archetypal masculine, and the archetypal feminine. If you're thinking of it in terms of a family, you move from looking up at your father and mother as the authorities to looking straight across at them as other adults, where you now are engaged as partners in the, the tasks that are ahead of us in life. Um, and when that happens, you're changed. That's called the apotheosis. And when that changes, when that happens, we're, that transformation causes us to want to bring that gift, whatever that gift is, back into the collective. And we're called to return. Some people don't return. There's lots of myths where people, where people were asked to come back and they go, you know, fuck it, I don't want to go back. The land of the lotus eaters, I think I want to stay here. Um, uh, you know, come back to, come, to, come off of your mountaintop and help us. The city is in danger. I don't want to come off my mountaintop. I mean, I'm sick of the city. Um, and, and sometimes people will take that, that call and they will go back and, and cross the threshold back into the, the regular world. But when they come back, they are a master of two worlds. They have had their experience with the other world. They now have rejoined the world of the collective. And they become one of the conduits of bringing the, the, the other world into the world of the collective. And then the, the illumination that always comes is that the other world is all around us anyway. It brings me to one of my, my most favorite mythological texts of the 20th century was the book Dune by Frank Herbert. In the me book too. Dune by Frank Herbert, the, the hero, Paul, before his apotheosis, while he's, he's considering taking the call, is talking to his friend who eventually will betray him, the Dr. Liu. And this happens lots in, in myths, where someone goes from being the betrayer to being the guide to being the betrayer over and over again, just like in, in real life. He gives him a Bible that was from his wife that had been, had been uh, uh, killed. 
And he says, open it to a passage. And Paul instinctively opens it to the passage that was of, of the doctor's um, late wife that has huge significance. And he reads these words to him. Think you that a deaf person cannot hear. What deafness then might we not all possess? What senses do we lack that we cannot see and hear another world all around us? The hero sees and hears the other world and brings knowledge of that back to the collective. And that's how the collective is renewed again and again. Because we all know that it's the nature of human beings to fall into corruption and to fall into, into uh, the temptations of the flesh, the temptations of power, the temptations of fear. And so the hero again and again has to go out, encounter the, these purifying fires of the hero's journey, and then come back again to inform the collective to renew it. And we're seeing that happening right now in our country, in our political structure. To come back and renew it, and out of that renewal arises a new civilization. Now, what Campbell and, and Freud thought, and Jung, all of them thought, you know, this all happened until modernity, and now modernity is just going to keep on grinding forward, more and more modernity. They didn't get it that red went to blue, which went to orange, which is where they were at, which goes to green, and then goes to teal, and then keeps going. Right. That every time uh, around, particularly as history is compressing now, as the spiral is compressing, because we can see it in our lifetime, that when we go to the next level, that there's a, a qualitative shift, and then the nature of all the myths change. And you can see this in the distinctions that people make these days between the hero's journey and the heroine's journey. Yeah. Back in the 70s, a woman named Mur Maureen Murdoch, who studied with Campbell, wrote a book called The Heroine's Journey, because she was pissed off that the hero's journey was all about the, all these guys doing heroes. And she did essentially a feminist reinterpretation of the hero's journey. Um, and it w and that's been followed by uh, from, from, uh, from Girl to Goddess, there's another book, and so on, where women are struggling with the idea of how does the hero's journey apply to the feminine. Um, and, you know, some of those, those, I think that where those, that, that work is best done is best understanding that when we hit uh, a stage of, of, of culture, while well, we have equal power, then out of equal power will come new mythological forms. Yeah. Because a lot of well, people what you're talking about is what you're talking about, Keith, is the movement uh, from the orange into the green. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You see, when we move into orange into green, then we start having different myths. You know, one yeah. of the things the Jesus myth was most persuasive because Jesus was offering stuff a couple of developmental levels above blue. Not just he wasn't just offering. Um, rationality, though, you know, the, the New Testament is a very rational document. He was offering egalitarianism. He was offering care and love for all. He was offering, you know, the healthy green, which was, everybody could feel that that was farther along. Now, of course, when we get to teal, which is more of a Buddhist orientation, hierarchy returns. You know, Christianity has a lot of trouble with hierarchy. Basically, the way Christianity deals with hierarchy is they go back to blue. Buddhism, on the other hand, goes forward into teal, in that in Buddhism, at least in some forms of Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, some others, they deal with the actual fact of natural hierarchy. <laughs> you know, uh, if you go to Tibet, the 32 levels of working in Tibet, those aren't made-up levels. Those are actual levels that you have to go through and not skip levels. It's very much like a, a martial arts school. You know, I yeah. studied karate, and, you know, you don't skip from white belt to black belt. You know, you have to go to brown belt. You have to go up to stages. And it's not a matter of, you know, somebody can just give you a black belt and now all of a sudden I'm a black belt and everybody's got to respect me. I have to demonstrate the qualities, the spiritual qualities and the physical qualities that are inherent and the knowledge and the consciousness that's inherent in a black belt. And, you know, and you can see that on the, on the studio floor. You can't really feel it from the inside. And when you can feel it from the inside, you then become initiated. And I had that experience in the karate school when I was a teenager. I went from white belt to black belt. And I went, hmm. So this is hierarchical. This is unhealthy green pretending that you can just go from white belt to black belt. If you go into the woods for a weekend and take acid and dance with the guys and so on, all of a sudden I've gone from being clueless to being a warrior. No, you haven't. You know, there are stages that have to be grown through. Not that I did go into the woods and take acid and dance with the guys. I mean, <laughs> I mean everybody did that. <laughs> It was yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
And so that, that's how the hero's journey inf informs all of us, and you see how it changes. The hero's journey in red is, and I'm going to talk about the healthy orientation, okay? The healthy hero's journey in red is the hero comes back and basically becomes the king that brings justice to chaos, to the wise, through strength. Genghis Khan was an embodiment of that. Genghis Khan created a peaceful empire. And you see in the first, one of the oldest legends, for instance, the legend of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh's friend died, and he couldn't stand it. He wanted to find the, the secret of eternal life for himself and for his friend. You know, and that's what, that's what guided that mythological epic journey. Just like in the Iliad, which is very different from the Odyssey. The Iliad is, is um, a concrete operational document, and the Odyssey is much more of a formal operational document. In the Iliad, it was just all about egocentric stuff. Paris wanted uh, Helen, then Agamemnon wanted Helen back, and then Athena got all pissed off, and then, and then uh, Poseidon, every, everybody was kind of just fucking with each other, and it was all egocentric. Odysseus, on the way back, was a rational person, and he was a lot more complicated. Um, he actually tricked the gods. Nobody tricked any gods in the Iliad. Odysseus tricked the gods. And Odysseus didn't just want to come back you know, for himself. He wanted to free his kingdom and um, liberate his wife Penelope from um, the unfair and uh, unjust uh, situation that she had been in. And so red heroes come back and they become um, the wise power god. Blue heroes, on the other hand, come back and they renew the faith. Um, blue heroes, uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther felt like the, the church had fallen into decadence. And so he came back and, and through the purity of his experience, wanted to renew the faith and created Puritanism, which even though it had a lot of excesses, certainly um, uh, took a stand against the corruption that had become endemic in the Catholic Church in uh, Europe uh, in his time. And so in the, the archetype in blue is you come back and you renew the, the, the purity of the sacred text and bring the true message of God back to the people. When you get to orange, you find people saying yes. And now we're bringing practicality and rationality into the myth. Um, and this is where you have the science fiction writers. This is where you have Einstein coming in and, and, and saying not only does relativity exist, but my belief is that there is an infinite force that, out of which all this stuff arises, and that's God. And that God is not an, an amoral or an immoral force. That's a, that's a force for love. But he had science on his side. You know, he, had, he brought the right quadrants in. And then we come to the green archetypes, and the green archetypes are the people that say, yes, we're all kings and queens, we're all princesses and princes. Um, we all deserve equal care and equal rights. You know, the Declaration of Independence, to a certain extent, was that. All men are created equal. That was a healthy manifestation of that, and, and that has become a sacred text of the United States. You know, if somebody goes and starts fucking with the Declaration of Independence, they're going to get the same kind of hammer falling down on them as if somebody went to the original Torah and started messing with it. It has become a sacred right. document. Yeah, and then we true. move into Teal, where we have the archetypes, and now we, have, we go into um, the archetype of Buddha. You know, Buddha was what, the only messenger of God who said, I am not, I am a man. You know, I am not God. I'm a person that's teaching the way to unity. Um, and in Buddhism, you don't, the, the self never gets enlightened. The self is actually the barrier to enlightenment. And in Buddhism, what you say is we continue to, to, to remove the shrouds that we have to that understanding that there's another world all around us. Um, and that there's certain people that have a clearer vision of that and certain people that have a more obscured vision. And the people with the clearer visions guide the people with the, the more clouded vision, and that's the natural hierarchy that arises out of that archetype. And that's what was taught in all three waves of Buddhism. Um, the Theravadan wave, uh, the Mahayana wave in, the, in emptiness studies, and the Mahamudra um, in the essence traditions. All three of them. Um, yeah. Yeah, cool I think stuff. that's right. Yeah. When I think about what the move into teal or turquoise has meant for me to the degree that I'm there on a good day, in terms of using the hero's journey, is I just see it as a lot more complex. It's like I go through two or three hero's journeys a day yes. if I pay attention. 
Right. You know, I just went through one right before this call. I, you know, I'm still dealing with the flood in my building oh, yeah. at the Integral Center in Boulder that I own, and I got a bid yesterday to replace the boiler that had been flooded, and it was sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> and it like, you know, just shocked me. And I was like, oh my God, I'm dealing with these boiler people out of Fort Collins, and you know, I feel like Grandpa at the used car dealer. You know, I mean, I just <laughs> don't have any confidence whatsoever. And you know, it's not like I laid awake, but I thought of it first thing this morning. I have to deal with this, and I call people and whatever. And I just realized I had to, and I didn't yes. want to. I hate the city. I I too like to stay in the mountain. But I just made myself dial the numbers, and I talked to this guy, and I was as straight as I could be. And, you know, he was a defensive. It, it turned out after about five, six minutes, we were both in the same team. And he was telling, well, you know, I think we could come in and take it apart and just clean up what you have. And, you know, it was just a whole new ball game. And I feel a little liberated, a little bit expanded, and I take that to the bank. You know, it's just an onion skin <laughs> on, you know, this big old onion of Jeff. But it's every time it's I – Yeah, exactly. Every time I do something I don't want to do or take the harder path, it does pay off in real time. And in Integral, you observe yourself just as you just did. You observe yourself doing it, and in observing yourself doing it, that one level of abstraction – takes you a little bit farther on your own personal path towards unity and enlightenment. Yeah. Because as you observe yourself doing it, you're not exactly the Jeff doing it, you're observing the Jeff doing it, and you, that transformation probably lit up what was good in the guy you were talking about, and all of a sudden you two were, in the lower left, co-creating something that worked especially good in this particular situation, and somehow leaving you both enlivened, which is yeah. what happens when the hero comes back. The hero comes back and people absorb the gift from their voice and their face and their eyes and their aura. Um, yeah. and, and that causes them to evoke the, the better parts of themselves. And I agree with you. I think this happens with all of us. We're called, and the, half the time, you know, you say no to the call, and then something bad happens. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to say, yes, okay, God damn it. You pick it up, you make the call, and you surrender. And then the, the guides show up, and then the dark night shows up, and then the transformation shows up, and then here we are again waiting for the next call. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and to actually see it that way consciously as a practice. I mean, I can, I can sort of do what I did unconsciously, but I can mm -hmm. also do it where I'm actually aware in real time of what I'm doing and yeah. that this is a challenge and that I'm open and I'm going to bring a good heart and I'm going to bring the willingness to, you know, whatever, just face what it is. And, and, and also, this is, as I said earlier, one of the great benefits of the hero's journey teaching to me was the realization that this should be happening. Yes, period. My orientation my whole life, it's what I was taught from parents, teachers, the culture, is this shouldn't be happening. It's awful ah. that it is. I can't stand it. You know, whatever it is. It, you know, it's this, and, uh, this damn flood and, oh, you know, whatever. Why do I have to deal with this? Blah, blah, blah. That whole storyline, I, I just don't finance it anymore. Yeah. I mean, I do if I'm really unconscious on an unconscious day, but on a good day, I don't go there, and that, that's a relief. So I actually do then the ogre, you know, this guy, this, and I talked to him once before, and he's kind of gruff, and he, you know, <laughs> he, he knows I'm a complete rube. So he's the ogre, man. You know, he's, the, yeah. he's under the bridge, and I've got to go deal with him. And so I did, and he turned out, as so often in myth, the ogre becomes the friend, the guide. And especially going back to the, the, the stations on the journey, the ogre is the, is the hostile father that has to be defeated, and usually they gobble us up. They did, many times <laughs> in the myths, the hero is literally dismembered. Yes. You know, they're crucified. And then reborn into another, another wiser and deeper person who has more of a relationship with shadow. And I think the more, the more you go through these cycles, the more you become interested and fascinated by your shadow. The more you're interested yeah. and fascinated by shadow, the less likely shadow is to jump up and bite you in the ass. Yeah. Because when shadow bites us in the ass is when we start acting badly. No, I think that's just one of the major shifts that happens as we move into integral, is we realize that our unwanted material, the stuff that hurts us and scares us, 
is our vehicle forward. And, and an integral radically different from the first tier who all first tier memes right. have some sense of this we've we've gone wrong. We need to be redeemed. Got to get rid of it. Yeah, got to get rid of it. Got to feel better. Got to take this pill. Got to whatever. And also, this is the other thing. This is why one of the reasons I wanted to talk about myth. Integral and, and post-modernity, post-post-modernity, needs to be remythologized. You know, we need to recognize that the mythic form, the, the larger-than-life qualities, are something that's necessary. They're necessary for us. We do it with movie stars and rock stars and with political figures and so on. And that that's a necessary figure. And to certain people, like Bill Clinton's a good example. Certain people find, uh, Gandhi's another example, um, uh, Desmond Tutu's another example. There's certain people that all of a sudden, it, or probably not all of a sudden, over time, discover that they have been given the, the job of occupying a mythological form. Uh, Pope Francis is, is another current example. And what they do is they just surrender to it. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I gave a book to Ken Watch that I'm sure he didn't read because it was a science fiction book. I, it was a book, a science fiction book by these people who went to a planet and they, could, they found a way to grow bodies so that they could have multiple lifetimes. And so some of the people kept focusing on some aspect of their personality until they became a pure expression of that aspect. And one time one of the heroes says, that's what basically a god is. A god is someone that is a, an archetypal person, a mythological person, is someone that has become the purest expression of the essence of that particular person. The purest expression of who you are at that particular point, if you surrender to that, you now have entered the area of enhanced power. You have become larger than another human being. You, by necessity, are connected to the fields that surround all of us and inform all of us and empower all of us, empower all of us if we like them. And the reason why I gave that to, to Ken is because Ken's done that, and I wanted him to, to I, you know, I just, the message to him was, okay, Ken, you know, this is, not only is this you, but this is part of what Integral needs. We need to re-mythologize um, uh, all of us, and we need to re-mythologize the current age and recognize that these forms are arising and that they're powerful and that they are connected to the other world. You know, there's, it, there are fields around us. I don't know if they're morphogenic fields. I don't know if they're, they're family fields. But I know that when, when I teach and that what other people like me uh, teach, when you teach, it's not just us teaching. You know, right. we're, we're surrendering to the extent that something else comes through us in addition to us, sometimes in place of us. And, you know, that's not something that is just an artifice or, or a metaphor. Um, that's something that, that I believe it really happens. And that's now part of the emergent mythology of the 21st century. And you know, you notice how it's, the egalit it's taking healthy green, but also it's going into teal, because there's a hierarchy here. You, you do your practices for 20 years, you're going to have a clearer channel than somebody who doesn't do any practices, yeah. um, usually. Uh, and then that's going to create forms like Eckhart Tolle and Ken Wilber um, and Desmond Tutu and Bill Clinton and those kinds of people. And those forms are going to inspire the collective. And then they're going to create movements like the evolutionary movement or now the ecological movement. They're people that have a religious, it's a, it's a, it's a sacred call to them to uh, save uh, the environment. It's not just scientifically a good idea or want to save mankind. There's, there's, a, there's a, a, yes. a sense of the sacred associated with it. Absolutely. I think that it's instructive to think of our integral movement, our humble yeah. little integral movement in these terms. Yes. And in a conversation a couple of us had with Ken a week or so ago, he was talking about this, that, you know, there's, there's always a complaint in the integral world that we, you know, all we do is talk about it and we think about it and we, we need to do things. And, and that's true. Uh, mm -hmm. And that in some ways it's premature to be doing too much because the thinking itself is, as he put it, thoughts are objects mm -hmm. in the, I mean, they're in the left-hand quadrant, they're immaterial, but in the world of the interior, they are objects and there's a storehouse of them. And mm -hmm. people had to think about modernity for 300 years before we got to the French and American revolutions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that actually what we're doing in the integral world is creating grooves of thinking uh, that are important. And what we have going for us, and this is where the world gets re-enchanted, is that we realize 
that we are riding the updrafts of emergence, that mm-hmm. they're actually, that we are being lived uh, because yeah. we see this, you know, pyramids to hate you thing in the last, you know, hundredth of a second and that something's <laughs> like going that. on here. And that we actually, because we realize that, we are in a position to influence it and to be truly co-creative with, you know, emergence itself. And that begins to be an enchanted, heroic quest. Luminous. Journey. Yeah. It becomes luminous. And, and also, the, the, the integral awakening in the world is happening. The, the, the thing about, it, about integral as we understand it is that as people awaken to second tier and they want to understand their experience, as far as I can see, the best framework to understand awakening into the second tier is integral understanding. Yeah. And certainly it has lit lots of people on fire. It lit Bill Clinton on fire. If it had, you know, if it hadn't been for integral, I would have not written seven books. I would not have you know, put... 15 lectures out on, you know, for sale on the web light or, or, or done the things that I've done. All that stuff, and the form of that um, was, I understood that from this particular framework. But, you know, if that framework hadn't showed up, I still would have had those kinds of awakenings, but it would have been very confused. And also I would have gotten in my own way, kind of like Ed, Edmund Wilson did in his book, Consilience. Beautiful book. Yeah. But, you know, if you're an integral person, you're reading a book and somebody leaves out one quadrant, you're going, well, wait a minute. Or if they leave out lines <laughs> and levels. Or even if they leave out types. Is influential as Steven Pinker rightly is, in, in my own mind, in my own teaching okay. and learning. Ultimately, he doesn't have any interiors going on there. Not much. Yeah, where's and, your interior, Steven? And then yeah. that scientism, you know, that coming, and now I, I know scientism affects me, but I have more of a chance of seeing it affect me because I'm integrally informed. Now, what that does is it gives me a chance to go farther. And also as a therapist, because as a therapist, I always want to help people with horizontal and vertical help, health. It gives me, it gives me a chance to, to support the development of consciousness in the world in, in general, and I know that there's qualitative changes happening, not just in the world, but in me. You know, you yeah. and I will be different in the next five or six years. I don't know how we're going to be different, Jeff, but I confidently predict there's going to be a qualitative difference in our consciousness unless one of us drops dead for some reason. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is something that the great thinkers of the past never thought. They never thought that they personally were going to be transformed five years or ten years from now. They thought they kind of had it dialed in. You see it in their books. You see it in Pinker's books. You see it in, in Wilson's books. Um, you know, Einstein didn't, you know, God bless him. <laughs> he was ready to be amazed. He was ready to be, be changed as he, as he developed it. Seems yeah, like. yeah. And one thing about integral is integral has that built into the system. It's built into the system that integrals that we're just as far as we are, and there's always farther to go. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's yeah, different. Well, and I, I would say that one of the ways we get there is by doing what we're doing right, right now. I think so. And, I, and as get in the arena of thinking, which is real and which is important and which is a permanent acquisition of humanity to the degree that we do it well. Yeah. <laughs> In and that we can evaluate creating organizing the morphogenetic field and 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 we can and we can discern um you know in the alcoholic anonymous they they say there's there's stinking thinking you know like a is full of great aphorisms because aa uh, is a is is basically a, a blue organization designed to help people transition from red to health from unhealthy red to healthy blue yes sure. and how do they do it they all sit around in meetings and they tell stories yeah. And those stories inspire people to, to choose something larger than themselves to surrender to, their higher power and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And so an integral yeah, understanding yeah. goes, yeah, okay, that's a good stage, and now there's, there's all these other stages beyond. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we do more than talk about things. And I think <laughs> the, the culture is being informed by integral and supported by integral in ways yeah. that, 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 hard, that a lot of people don't even know and, and won't know for decades to come. Yeah. Uh, well, and, you know... I, how um, wonderful it is that the integral community as it is, uh, is so vibrant uh-huh. and so full of really interesting people who are doing such interesting things and 
hanging together and growing. I mean, if you think about 10, 12 years ago, there was nothing. There was no integral community. That's the uh-huh. blink of the eye. And here, right. You know. What is it when your clock, that's what, a thousandth of a second? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're, down to a <laughs> we're down to a billionth of a second for integral. So, and look anyway. at where we're going. We're going back to the, just the, the theme of the day. You know, why are we all so excited about um, the Enneagram? The Enneagram being re-mythologicalized uh, <laughs> type. Remythologized. Okay. Remythologized. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Remythologizes type. And so it's not just that I'm an extrovert. No, I'm a six. Okay, so a six has a story. A six has a form. A six, a six has as much form to me as the god Hermes. Or for me, my archetype has always been Loki, the tricksters. Most therapists, um, for instance, are associated with the trickster archetype because the tricksters are always on the edges. They're always between worlds. And so therapists have to be between worlds because you're always initiating people from one world to another. And so right. you can't exist fully in one world. You always have to exist in multiple worlds. Well, and so the, what the Enneatype does is now it remythologizes type in a way that somehow appeals to that deep understanding, that, that dream quality that, that, that where my unconscious knows that it's not just Keith's unconscious. It's connected yeah. to a larger unconscious that comes from everywhere and every time. Yeah. Well, no, it just makes everybody uh, a character in a way. It just uh-huh. helps. I mean, I, instead of this person who's kind of annoying and doesn't think the way I do it, blah, 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 pain in the ass, I see, oh, he's an eight. Yeah. All of a sudden, he becomes a character. And he might and be a threshold wonderful. guardian. He might yes, be a threshold exactly. guardian that you have to get past to get through on the next step of your epic journey. Yes. He has a job to do. Yeah, <laughs> he has a job yeah. to do. No, and, I, and that, that does re-enchant the world. Yeah. And give me deep meaning. And I, when you and I were talking a week or so ago, thinking about this call and this topic, I remember you said something that was really hit me between the eyes because I know it myself, is that when you with your clients talk about the hero's journey and about their presenting problem as being part of that journey, it does change. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah, huge big deal. It, so tell can... me about that. What you're actually doing is you're helping them see their heroic yeah, you, you know, in their it, it starts with it's it starts with the incredible power of consciousness. It, you, you know, uh, uh, somebody I know was in a neuroanatomy class, and their neuroanatomy teacher, who had started the whole program, said, "This is my rationale against war. Look at this human brain. Look what this is capable of." Any activity that endangers human brains is obscene and unacceptable. And so this was an orange person using their scientific orientation, shifting over into the left quadrants and finding essentially a spiritual orientation to their understanding of war. So people come in in therapy quite often in dark night. Quite often they've refused the call. Or sometimes they've taken Mm, a call and they've become bogged down. Sometimes they come in as they're being dismembered by the threshold guardians. And sometimes the threshold guardians is a wife or a husband or a son or a daughter or a boss or something. You know, sometimes they've been caught up in the temptations along the way, which is addiction um, or obsession um, or um, uh, archetypal dissociations. Um, and so they, they come in in those particular places and, they, and always they come in feeling, unless they're narcissists, they come in feeling diminished. And so out of that diminishment, I feel their power. I know that they are God. I know that they're at the center of a unique universe that came into being when, they, when their egg was fertilized and will, and will go out of existence when they die, and that their universe will go as they go. And I am motivated to have them take responsibility for the creation and the maintaining of a wonderful, vibrant, beautiful universe with them as a hero in the center. And the hero at the center is never doing it just for themselves. They're always doing it for the good of all, always. And people don't forget about that in their pain because pain makes us egocentric. 
And so in the midst of our egocentricism, in the midst of our selfishness that is given to us from our pain, if we discover, you know, we have a mission to serve the world, even if it's through our pain, somehow that enlivens us, that gives us the courage to take that next step. And as we take those next steps, we begin to transform. And, you know, whatever the step is on the journey, letting them know what step they're in, you know, if, say, it's the atonement with the Father, literally. You know, say it's going back and dealing with the demons of historic abuse. You know, say it's dealing with their, their reluctance to accept their physical body and their neglect of it. Whatever it is, you know, taking on that call and then meeting it and moving forward leaves people feeling more connected to God and to other people. Yeah. And so, so, now, if you're a really solid, totally 100% orange person, this is not the language that I would use. <laughs> I would talk right. about these constructs, but I talk about it in orange language. And, you know, the same way with blue. You know, I've got to find the, their orientation with blue. But, but still, and I remember, in every one of the V-memes, the, the hero's journey exists and is happening, and so it can be explained and understood and celebrated in that meme. And if you do it, the more, the more fully you do it, the more it leads you to the next developmental level. And that's how it works in therapy, which is, you know, yeah. almost too much. No, I can feel it. I, it, it, would, it would change everything for me uh, to have a therapist yeah. help me to see that. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Not that it always goes well. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes people get dismembered. You know? Sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes people will decline the call. Some people go, you know, this is too much trouble. I don't want it. You know, so, you know, I'm not saying no, that. To, to, but, but, but the hero's journey is, is a dangerous journey. You know, we yeah. forget the fact that a lot of times people get killed or people, you know, people get caught. People end up in the land of the lotus eaters and never leave it. You know, Ulysses was the only guy that came back from all the armies that sailed to Troy. So yeah. it's, not in, it's not a walk in the park, and it's not easy. And, but the bottom line, if we surrender to the journey, whether we get killed or not, we've created a wonderful universe that inspires everybody else and that creates a bridge between the other world and this world, which exists all around us. I want, to, I, want to, I want to tell you a poem. Is this okay if I tell you a poem before yeah, we stop? Yeah, Keith, that's just, I, I was just actually a little bit stunned by what you just said. It's so true. Oh. You know, it really so here's does. a poem. Uh, go, go, on. go on. It really does what? Go on. Well, it creates another world. It shows it to people. Whether, yeah. whether or not you die, it's, it's still a, a great success. Yeah, and if I die doing my best to do right, then I've created a good universe. Yeah. There's a poem I heard from Gene Houston, and uh, it's a poem by Christopher Fry called The Sleep of Prisoners. And this is it, and I love this poem. The human heart can go to the length of God. Dark and cold we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries breaks, cracks, begins to move. The thunder is the thunder of the flows, the thaw, the flood, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now, when wrong comes up to meet us everywhere, never to leave until we take the longest stride of soul men ever took. Affairs are now soul size. The enterprise is exploration into God. What are you making for? It takes so many thousand years to wake. Will you wake for pity's sake? Yeah, man. No, that's beautiful. I remember hearing Jean Houston do that poem many years ago, and she was another proto-integral to me. I mean, for, to me, who was, I was a sort of down-in-the-mouth, dystopic green <laughs> and I was already sick of it. I, I, did, I didn't take long with that stage, but I was real sick of it. And to have this idea that the ice is cracking now, you know, Will and you the wait stairs for are soul-sized. Yes, exactly. Yes. That was very, very inspiring to me. And, uh, and of course, Jean Houston, you know, all six foot three of her or whatever, just with her booming theatrical voice, you know, right. it was just lovely. That's what a beautiful, beautiful poem that... Uh, really sums up what we're talking about. Yeah, she knew Campbell. She, on his deathbed, she, she had a conversation. He was all pissed off because he felt like he was just getting it. 
you know, he felt like he was beginning to put it together. And you can tell that in the last part of Hero with a Thousand Faces. When he talks about the void, when he talks about emptiness, when he talks about eternity being one side and giving birth to time, you know, eternity as a masculine and time as a feminine, he's not just talking about it. You can feel how he has embodied it, how he has had the experience, and he's trying to articulate it. He's trying to bring the gift back to us. He's trying mm-hmm. to be a master. He's, as a master of two worlds, he's trying to, to create the bridge. And like all bridge makers, you never really feel fully satisfied because the bridge is never stable. Because 70% of the population is, is, is amber or less developed. Mm-hmm. And all you can do is to make the best bridge you can at, in, through in your incarnation and then have faith that, that other bridges will be created and that evolution yeah. will move forward. Well, he built a beauty. And, sure uh, you know, a lot of the transmission I got from him, uh, as well as from Hero with a, Th- with a Thousand Faces, was, of course, the famous Bill Moyers interviews when he was 82 or 83. Yeah. And you could see he was still getting it. He was as vibrant and alive and sh- sharp and vivid as anybody I've ever seen at any age. Uh-huh. And what an inspiration, what a transmission that what series is. And anybody who's listening to this, if you want a good drink of Campbell, call those up and look at them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. All right, Brother Keith. Well, I think we got that all straightened out. I think we did. I think we had a wonderful time again. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Jeff. I love you too, brother. So we'll stay in touch, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.